Oh, man. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning, and um, it's good to see you from up here, not down here. Um, just, uh, I know you're all just like on the edge of your seat wondering, like, how's your calf doing, Daniel? Oh, Danny. I called myself Daniel. That's my son. Anyways, it's doing better today, and so thank you for asking. Um, man, I, I want to tell you, I'm really excited about um, this morning, as with every um, chapter in the Gospel of John, and really the temptation is, like, where do you stop for any given message? There's so much to cover, and today um, there's a, a lot of ground to cover, and I, I hope to not... I, I, I told uh, Cutie in the back who's running the, um, the slides today, the multimedia stuff, I, I just said, I think I have two sermons. So I'm just going to confess to you, there might be two sermons in one. It might be a bonus day today for you, but I'm going to do my best to just give you what I believe the Lord um, put in my heart. But before I do any of that, you might notice on your seat there's a, a card there that says thank you or, or maybe has a, a kin, a, an age group of a teacher. Uh, you, you might know that we have adopted Fairhaven Elementary School and we pray for the school. We do our best to keep them encouraged and we just like to send them notes of gratitude every once in a while. And if you don't know any teachers there, that's just fine. How many of you have ever had a teacher before? Right on, so you can relate. So whatever the grade is that's there, you might just take a moment. Um, like we, we like to provide you some extra entertainment. If it gets boring during the message, just go, oh, yeah, I have that card. I got something to do. You can just pick up the, the card and just start writing. No, you can. But, but our, our heart's desire is just to collect a bunch of cards to simply send over there to say thank you. And you have to know that we've done this for a number of years, and it's a small effort on our part. It really is, right? Like how hard is it to take a moment and write something thoughtful? Um, but the, the multiplication of what that does for our teachers down the street, we continue to get emails that just say thank you. And it's crazy because we'll, we'll get them like months later and say, hey, we put all those cards up on our bulletin board. Or, or, or someone will say, uh, hey, we, when we go through difficult times, we, we have a, a bunch of those cards and we remember that you're praying for us. So don't underestimate what this simple thing does uh, to be able to really bless people. So if you get an opportunity to do that today, we'd love for you to do that. Um, secondly, I wanted to just let you know that next Sunday, um, 60 of the men of Bridge will be up in the mountains having a time of retreat. Yeah, we're excited about that. And so um, that'll come through our Sunday morning service. So if you see uh, less guys than usual, you just know that uh, it wasn't a protest, that we're doing something. Um, but if you could, um, would you mind putting up the slide for the men's retreat again? And we have, I, I just wanted to share with you some things that is really cool about this time. Pastor Scott's been working really hard to get this thing up and going. Scott, I appreciate all the work that you've done. But um, we have a, a great lineup of speakers. And, and the reason that I wanted to show these speakers to you is just because um, I think it's something that you might be considering praying for us while we're up there um, I think we have it. If we don't, that's okay, but I'll just tell you who they are. Um, the, the first speaker is on the top there. His name's Alan Frau. How many of you have ever heard that name before? Maybe a couple of you have. Alan is an author, and he's the lead pastor over Southlands Church, which is in Brea, and they have a family of churches that meet throughout. And um, we became friends with Alan through a book that he wrote that we, we read together, a book in the Psalms. And then he came and, and spoke to our, our staff and just been a good friend. And we're grateful that, that a busy guy like that, who's the pastor of, uh, of, of a big church and then has other churches, is like, yeah, we'll come and speak to your men. And so um, that's Alan. And then the, the next guy, and the thing I had to say about Alan, I'm excited to hear from him, is he's a true like father in the faith. You know, have you ever been around uh, leaders that you just have like a fatherly impact? And so I'm grateful that our guys get to hear him. The second speaker is one of my closest friends in the world, Trent Shepard. And some of you have uh, met Trent before, but Trent's a little bit of a wild man. You can tell he still has long hair and a long beard. So he's got the John the Baptist vibe going. But, um, but Trent is the director of training at Youth with a Mission. And so he has a big job of, of uh, training and discipleship among young missionaries. But he's coming out from Kona, Hawaii to, um, to also share with us. And, um, and Trent's an author. And uh, you'll get to see him on Sunday. We're he and I are going to come down a little early from the mountain, and Trent will, will speak here on our church service on Sunday morning. And then the final um, speaker we have is Will Anderson. Some of you have met Will before, but um, he has an office here. At, we share with our space with him here, and he pastors in Santa Ana and is also an author and just a great guy. So isn't it cool to have friends? I just thought you guys should meet some of our friends that will be speaking into the lives of our guys. 
Um, I have to say one other thing, and um, I'm just going to embarrass Carson and Jojo because there are just times to celebrate good things, and these two got engaged. So could you please stand, and can we just celebrate with you guys? Come on, we just need to embarrass you. Yeah, congratulations. Both Carson and Jojo are, are students at Chapman University, and we're blessed to have you as a part of our congregation, and you represent a lot to us. Just the fact that, um, that you've come from that school to fellowship with us here, which we've prayed for the school for many years, and, and so um, we're just, we, we love you guys, and we're super excited for you. You're a, a beautiful couple, and you have a beautiful life ahead of you, so yeah, congratulations. All right. All right, let's get to it. Um, John chapter 3. If you want to get yourselves ready there by turning to John chapter 3 in um, 22 is where, where we'll begin. If you were with us last week, you met Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, who um, was a Pharisee, but not just any Pharisee. He seemed to have a little bit more clout among the Pharisees. Uh, Nicodemus was a, a man who was described as the teacher of Israel and the ruler of, of folks that were in the... Um, the Jewish worship world. And that meant that as a Pharisee, he had some power. His whole job was to make sure that everybody was, was doing things right in terms of their worship of God as right as he knew. That meant like obeying all kinds of laws and commands. We know that there was the oral law that, uh, or excuse me, the written law that we see in the Bible, but a good Pharisee also believed in the, the oral law, the oral traditions that held some 612 commands on top of other commands. So you got to know a guy like Nicodemus had a lot of head knowledge. He knew what was right and wrong. He knew the rule to keep you from breaking the rule. Do you know anybody like that, rule followers that know, I don't even want to come near the rule, so I'm going to make rules to help me not get near breaking that rule. And that, that's sort of, sort of what Nicodemus' job was. But there was something compelling about Jesus that he saw that, that caused him to want to seek him out. And what we, what, one of the things we gleaned from Nicodemus was that he came to Jesus at, at night. And there could be various reasons why he chose the nighttime to come to him. But one theory would be that, that nighttime was the time he could get a direct audience with Jesus. That there weren't crowds around. And, and he, was a, he seemed from scripture and from what we read later in John as well to be a genuine seeker of the truth. What we don't know about Nicodemus is if he went for it and said, I want to be a follower, we know he was certainly a sympathizer. And so, um, so when, we, when we look at today's passage, you're going to see some things, and man, I'm, I'm going to do my best to stay on track, but there's so much to mine, and I want to encourage you that as you're experiencing this kind of teaching on a Sunday morning where we're trying our best to break God's word open verse by verse, May you be inspired by it, that, that when you come away from just a sort of appetizer of how good God's word is, I pray that you'd be inspired to dig a little deeper. There are all kinds of contrasts of things that are happening here. You got a guy like Nicodemus who, who comes at night, and in a, in a little while we're going to meet an unnamed Samaritan woman who Jesus meets midday. You have uh, uh, other Pharisees that are jealous. You have all these things that are happening and through it, you, you could read this stuff and really mine for yourselves the riches of God's word. And as you do, you get more excited about God's word. Let's just have a painfully honest moment. How many of you have read God's word before and gotten a little sleepy and maybe even a little bit bored? This is a point that I, I came to in my life. And some of you are, can I do that in church? Yeah. It wasn't a trick question. It was, I think we've all been there before. And I remember... Um, early in my walking with Jesus, just going um, to my older brother and just saying, I just get really bored when I'm reading the Bible. And I felt like bad saying it because I wanted, I wanted to grow in my faith and I wanted to want to love what I was reading. And my brother's one of the most practical people in the world. He's like, did you happen to tell God that? I was like, can you do that? He says, absolutely. Does he hear any knows? So tell him and ask him to give you a hunger for it. And you know what? I just got to imagine that our good, good father loves that prayer and loves to answer it, that, that he would give us a hunger for his word. And, that, and God certainly did that in my life. And so I would encourage you, if you do find yourself um, bored at times or not knowing where to read, this is a, a good opportunity for us together to be reading some of the same stuff. And so once we cover it, there's no rule that says you can't go back and get a little more. And so go back and get a little more because there's a lot to be learned here. So John chapter 3 and verse 22. 
Let me give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on as we read it. Um, you're going to hear this dialogue, these short little dialogues between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus' disciples. It can get a little confusing when you're reading it because you've got two Johns and they're two different guys. So you've got John the Apostle, who's the one writing this wonderful gospel. Remember, a spiritual gospel, one that's got lots of messages for us as we want to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And two, you have John the Baptist, who's a wild man, forerunner, who's making the way for Jesus. And so um, this is a dialogue between John the Baptist's disciples and, and Jesus' disciples, right? And what's happening is uh, John the Baptist was wildly successful. Like in the church world, man, he would have just had like his, his followers on whatever social media platform would have been off the hook. He would have been, you know, sought after as a speaker and whatever else. He was doing quite well. That tons of people were coming and being baptized by this wild man. And, and if you were part of his crew, like, you know, you, you, you got like guys that are with him that are, are learning from him, you're also doing pretty well, right? That, that among your, your community, it's like, hey, you roll with John the Baptist. Like, that's big stuff, you know? And so as they're coming through and as the movement of Jesus and his message is taking root, um, change is happening really quick. How many of you just raise your hand and say, I love me some change happening real quick? Yeah, some of you actually do, and others are like, ha-ha, that's funny, I hate change. And, and this change was happening really quick. Imagine going from, like, real fast, your, like, your whole life you wanted to be in the in crowd. Your whole life you wanted to be effective for God, and now you are, and you're with John the Baptist. And things on the east side of the Jordan where they were baptizing were going quite well, right? But, but they traveled from the east side to the west side. I'm using so, many, uh, so much self-control to not do old-school hip-hop um, <laughs> jokes with this whole thing. But the reality of it is, life on the west side of the Jordan was different for them than life on the east side of the Jordan. There was a rival. There must have been some kind of rivalry. But what happened was, it, you're going to read here that they changed geographic locations. And as they do, an unnamed Jewish guy comes to them. And it seems as though he's an instigator, kind of stirs the pot a little bit and gets them questioning if they're doing it right. Have you ever wondered if you're doing it right? Honestly, I think it's what keeps us from evangelism sometimes. Like sometimes we want to share our faith, but we don't want to get it wrong. Because when it comes time to seal the deal, we want to make sure that we do the right prayer or say the right thing. I mean, be honest. And, I, and, and, and so when, when questions come up that question the validity or how you're doing something, it produces a little bit of insecurity. At least it seems like it did in this case. And so they, they go to um, their leader with this information, and that's where we find ourselves. And so let's read it together. John chapter 3 and verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to, into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing Pay attention to that. It gets a little confusing in John uh, 4 because it's going to say that Jesus was baptizing with his disciples. And then there's a parenthetical statement, a little parenthesis that says, well, Jesus actually wasn't baptizing. His disciples were. So just keep that in your mind um, for funsies. And then it goes on and it says in verse 23, John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem or Salem um, because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet but been put to prison. When you're studying the Bible, you pay attention to things, you observe things. There's geographic locations that are there for a reason. One of the interesting things is that this area is nudging close to a place called Samaria. Everybody say Samaria. Samaritans in the Bible, for us in our context today, a good Samaritan is like a really good thing, right? Like if you're a good Samaritan, you help people no matter what. But in the Bible, in these times in first century, if you're a good Jewish follower, man, you want to stay as far away from their region and that particular people. There is straight up racism against the Samaritan people. So it's about to get controversial in just a quick minute. And so they're getting close to this area. They're nudging close with some baptism. And so the author kind of wants you to know um, something's happening geographically there. There's another idea there where it says that there's an abundance of water. So keep in mind the theme of living water. Everyone say living water. <laughs> it means something to us right now, and it meant something to them as well. And so we'll hopefully unpack that a little bit too. 
And so the next verse, it says, Now there was a discussion that arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. There's a lot packed into that little sentence. Don't you just wonder? And and I do think it's wise to ask the Holy Spirit to activate your imagination when you read the Bible. Because you're wanting to do some investigative work. Like, what was that conversation all about? Um, It's amazing how one unnamed person can really turn the tide of what you believe or think or what you're talking about. And this seems to be the case here, that there was this person who, who, who came up and brought up a discussion with John's disciples over purification. And so the result of this, we don't know what the conversation was, but we know the result of it was that they in turn came to their leader, John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he uh, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, um, I think I messed something up there. Anyways, you can see it up there. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. There's a certain tone that there, that's there. It says, um, some of these words that you're, you're reading, they're so big and exaggerated. They don't say, Rabbi, Jesus, the one you proclaimed as the Christ, is baptizing, and there are a lot of people going to his side. There's something, in, as you read it, that you can assume from the text when they say he It's not like pleasant about Jesus. It's like, hey, that guy, everybody's going on his team now. You can almost like interpret a little twangy nasal whininess to that statement. Like, Jesus, they're all going to his side. I mean, John, not Jesus. Like, it's possibly something like that. They're big statements. They're not specific. They're general. All. Are, is everybody going? No. But to them, it's like someone caused us to question our validity, our effectiveness, our identity. I think we're getting a little jealous. I think that not only are we jealous because of our, our identity, but I'm going to, in a moment, explain something I think is appropriate and true is you can get like offended for yourself. Like if someone, if someone's better than you at something, you know, you might not say it, but you've been like really good at it this whole time and someone comes into work and they're like new and they haven't even been doing it that long and all of a sudden they're better. How does that feel? You know, it's an instant opportunity to, to be tempted towards a little bit, little, just a little bit of jealousy And if that person is also like slightly cocky or rude, like they actually know they're better at it than you, they don't even have to say anything. They just like give the look like I'm better than you. (laughs) You have the temptation not only towards a little jealousy, but then a little bit of offense, right? Offense and jealousy. So that's like one-on-one. But I think there's another complicated layer to offense and jealousy that is being experienced here. It's a, I would call that first one a primary, like a primary offense or jealousy. A secondary one would be it's one step removed where it's like, it's not towards you, but it's towards someone you really love. It's a follower who goes, hey, I don't like the way they're talking about you, the people. I don't like the way that you're being a little, it feels maybe a little disrespected. And maybe let, let me bring it down to home for, for you and I today. You could, like, uh, say something offensive to me, or you could do something that makes me feel a little jealous, and I could deal with it, hopefully, in a mature way. But if you say you do that to my wife, I'm like, whoa, hats off, gloves on, what'd you say? Right? Like, it's just, like, you just go into a different mode. That's, that's secondary, Right, And so some, sometimes those things can get really tricky. And I think what we're, we're seeing here is some primary and secondary. I actually put up a little slide if we put the definitions of those things up. Um, like a primary offense with, or a, t- a temptation is something that directly offends you or tempts you towards jealousy. A secondary offense or temptations are something that offends or tempts you towards jealousy on behalf of someone else. I'm so offended on your behalf. I'm so mad because of what they think about you. I'm so jealous on your behalf. 
It feels exactly the same way and you deal with it the exactly the same way, but it's super tricky because you think you're almost doing something with integrity, right? Anyone ever experience this stuff? You don't have to raise your, oh, Terry, you can't raise your hand in front of everyone. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think we've all, this is part of the human condition. These are the things that Jesus is addressing in real time. And John the Baptist does something so awesome. Do you guys remember a few years ago, there was a, um, a kind of a campaign of creative ways for famous people to share their, their testimonies? And so, like, maybe someone who was a celebrity, uh, professional athlete or whatever else, they would do these really great videos. They were low production, um, not much going on in the background, just a couch and a light, and it was termed, I am second. Do you remember these? They were really inspiring. They were short introductions to somebody who you're like, whoa, they just got, I remember, like, Christian Hasoy was a, you know, is a professional skater. Like, okay, Hasoy's on there. What does he have to say? And it gives us a little bit about who they are and a lot about Jesus. And then it ends with, I am second. Well, they didn't get that from like a creative, like aha moment. They get that from what's being modeled here in scripture from, from John. And let's read about how, how he um, describes this. He says in, in verse 27, he shows them marks of true humility. He says, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And he says, you yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is the one whom the bride, um, this is the one, excuse me, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What I think John's saying in such like right now clear terms to his followers are like, hey, I'm super happy with my mission. My mission is the best man, not the groom. If you ever are in a situation with, there's all kinds of stuff that happens around a wedding, but you got a, you got a, a, a good best man and he just brings it all, just kind of calm. He's putting out fires here and there. Some drama's happening over there. He's secretly going in there. Psh, we're not going to do that right now. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because the best man knows this day is not all about me. It's not all about all of you. It's about the bride and the groom. And, and John the Baptist was like, that's my job. I am second, and I love my job. And when I was reading that, I got really inspired because you realize the temptation of the enemy is so tricky, especially in the times that we live in, to put in us some desire to be more awesome than we are, to think we're more awesome than we are, to think that we, we um, need a platform or whatever else, but to realize we got this great role to just continue to make Jesus look better. It's not like he needs our help to look better. He just needs us to get out of the way so we don't make him look worse. You know, I, I went to this really great day conference. I was joking with my daughter and her friends yesterday that um, I know everything about Gen Z now because I went to a day conference. Like, you know, but, but truly, they, it was about this generation and things that they like and that they don't like and, and stuff like that. And it was actually really encouraging. I'm very encouraged by the things that I heard. Um, and I totally can't remember why I brought all that up. <laughs> I seriously cannot. It just went out of my head. Anyways, it was a great conference. So um, John makes this statement. It'll come back to me, and I'll tell you when it does. Um, John makes this statement about um, all the, the summary of what he had said about the, the desire to just be obedient to who God called him to, to be, and then to teach those that were trying to be like him to do the same, to find confidence in, in following the mission that God had for his life, not being overly ambitious. But here's the statement that many of us have heard before we've quoted. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. I remember what I was going to say now. They did a lot of statistical analysis, like pretty good. It was the Alpha, if you're familiar with Alpha, great organization, large organization, doing tremendous work in the area of evangelism. 
and surveyed, I don't know, 25,000 globally in their sphere of this generation. And it's, it's kind of questions that have been asked of every generation, um, but it's of non-believers ask the question of what do they think about Jesus? And when they asked what they thought about Jesus, Jesus got high scores. Like, for real. They, they thought, you know, from their understanding of history, of what the things, the justice that Jesus stood for, the way that he advocated for people, and so forth. And as you've heard these statistics in other generations as well, they asked a follow-up question. First question, what do you think about Jesus? You know, Jesus is awesome. What do you think about the church? Interesting, isn't it? The best men, the maids of honor, actually the bridegroom as well. In the eyes of a generation in this moment, doesn't have that reputation like John is promoting. Like, hey, let's, let's, let's decrease so that he increases. Let's walk in humility so that Jesus is exalted. I thought, what a beautiful message and what a, a timely thing as I'd heard that together. Does anybody else identify with that? Have you ever had a weird experience with a Christian? <laughs> if you have it, you might be the weird Christian. That's the truth. <laughs> so just think about it. So I didn't write that down. That just came as inspiration, like in the moment. <laughs> Look. None of us are perfect. This isn't a bad church message. This isn't, like, it's an easy message to pick on the church. This is, we're, we're the family of God. That's an easy message because it's made up of humans. But, but I think what, what we're dealing with and what God wants us to hear today is, is a personal look at our own lives. Is, are we easily offended? Are we slightly jealous? Is it something personal, maybe in our own sphere? Or is it on behalf of somebody else? And the response from a godly forerunner who was all about making Jesus bigger was, hey, it's okay. I love my job. I love, I, I want to get a t-shirt that says, I am second. That is just completely different than the world's message, right? The world's message is you better be first and you better kick out anyone who tries to get in your way and stomp them down in Jesus' name. <laughs> all right, let's move on. So at the end of that, uh, it's, it's a very simple statement. And if you look in your Bibles, it's quoted, um, he, I must decrease, he must increase. There's a mathematical equation, right? Yeah, I, get a, I get like this, he gets like that. This doesn't mean you stop being human. This doesn't mean that you, you somehow uh, are falsely humble and you don't do anything. This just means you know your position in light of the beauty of Jesus, that you're there to be the one who serves the one who, who promotes him. And that's what John did quite well. So there's an end of the quotes right there in some Bibles. In other Bibles, the quotes continue on. And this is just, um, it was helpful for me to hear it because you have the end of verse 30 and then starting in verse 31 kind of sounds like a different thing. It could sound like John kept talking, but scholars believe in looking at the Greek, um, John the Baptist's words were very simple sentences. And these words here sound a lot like John the Apostle. And the, the, the explanation is this, as I read what I'm about to read, John the Apostle is kind of bringing a summary to everything that's been said about Nicodemus and being born again and God so loving the world and so forth. And then he's going to give you this statement. So here this statement. It says, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in, earthly, in an earthly way. And he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. He gives the spirit without measure. Verse 35, and this sounds a lot like what you've read before in John chapter 3. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the message, right? That, that God didn't come to judge the world. He came to rescue it. That the, 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 the need to be rescued is already there because the wrath of God is hanging out there. That, that condemnation of, of not being able to make the mark. And so this, his repeated message of, if you believe, you can receive this eternal life. And then he goes into this next part, which is a beautiful story about him engaging the woman at the well. 
He says this, uh, chapter 4 in verse 1 says this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, here's your parenthesis, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea to depart again for Galilee. There's a lot that's packed into the words learned and heard, okay? So when Jesus learned and he had heard, those words together are painting a picture that Jesus realized, and it, it, it can be seen in the original language of the text, but Jesus began to realize that he was being jealously watched. He was being jealously watched by Pharisees. Now the Pharisees go, okay, he's getting way more popular than we are, and people are all going towards him. And so what was Jesus' response to that? I love Jesus' response. Because what I would term what was happening as they were seeing it for them was very serious. And in their mindset, it was like they saw something that was happening that could potentially lead people astray. What Jesus saw was a group of of jealous leaders that were worried about their own power being confronted by Jesus' real power. I would call that drama, right? Drama. Have you, do you remember the eighth grade? Not much changes after the eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade. It just gets like different players. You know what I mean? Sort of my theory in life. And I came to that theory when I was a young pastor in my early, mid-twenties. And I went to a Bible study. And um, I remember the Bible study was being taught. And I remember they would separate the men and the women. And the men were on one side. And all the dudes, when the guy turned around, were like, "Ah," like throwing stuff and, you know, being funny. And they were like in their 60s. And I thought, okay, there's my theory. That's what it felt like in eighth grade, and it's happening now. So that must mean that not much changes after eighth grade. <laughs> I, won't mention, I won't name any names, like uh, he's not here, Chet Britt, um, Denver McClellan. Uh, these are names that we know well, uh, for some of us have been around for a while. But at any rate, I will say that, that Pastor John was there taking copious notes. And he didn't, he didn't misbehave with the rest of the young men. So <laughs> Look, all that aside, this was drama. This was drama. And what, how did Jesus respond to drama? He just moved on. I think there's an application for us. Jesus literally made a geographical change where he's like, okay, these guys are catching wind of what's going on. Uh, something's happening. I'm just going to move on because I've got a mission. And I want to say that there are times to confront things that are necessary to confront, and there are times to discern that somebody or something or there's a force or the enemy trying to get at you through an individual who's making certain choices, whatever it might be, there's times to discern that it's not worth the drama of getting involved in the drama. It's time to just kind of move on. And you have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to discern what that means. That there's, you could take my statement right there and plug that in and go, oh, that's a good word. I'm going to write that down. So anytime something happens, you become an avoider. That is not what I'm saying. I think there's junior high type behavior where someone could be saying things about you, posting things about you, um, I don't know, passively, aggressively making certain comments or whatever else. And you tried four times to go, hey, are we cool? And they're like, yeah, of course we're cool. I love you. You're my bestie. Whatever. (laughs) However fake that it is. And you realize, okay, we're not getting anywhere. I'm just going to go over here and do what God's called me to do. Again, Dangerous thing I'm saying. Does that mean in your church family it gets awkward and so you, you go online and look at a Yelp review and you find that church doesn't have any non-dramatic people there. I'm going there. No, because remember I said before, like if you go there, you might mess it up, right? Like, like th- this is... <laughs> just picking on you today. No, but, but this is... There's a difference, right? The, in discernment, just knowing... And Jesus seemed to know... What is a a drama distraction that I can kind of move on from? And what is an offense issue that's sort of a Matthew 18 kind of situation where you realize something has happened. I can go to a mature other person. I can tell what the offense is. We can have restoration. I can gain family through that. So Jesus moves on. He moves on because his mission was very, very important. And what was important was found here in in the fourth verse. And I love this terminology of what, how, it, how it reads. It says this, and he had to pass through Samaria. Everyone say, he had to pass through Samaria. <laughs> you had to be the last one. Huh? No, I'm kidding. So, 
he, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to do it. Was it like this compelling of God? Maybe, I mean, you could preach it that way, um, that Jesus was obedient to the Father, that he only did what God told him to do. He had a divine appointment that was waiting for him. I think that that's true. But in order to get from the region he was going to where he needed to be, he had to pass through a certain area that no one went to, Samaria. This is, an, this is a region that devout Jews would take however long it took to go like, like from here to here is how I get there. But in order to get there, I'm going to go this way for a long time, come around that way, and then come around the back because I don't even want to set foot on your nasty land. Because your nasty land is pagan. And that feud that they had goes back 700 plus years to a time of Assyrian captivity. You know, the Ephraim and Manasseh, these half tri- this half-tribe of Israel, so the two together, they are living in this region called Samaria. The Assyrians, as was their way of doing things when they took you over, they brought in other cultures as well that they had taken over, including their own. And they leave you there intermingled with other people. Why do they do that? Master plan. Hey, that pagan girl's pretty good looking. Oh, let's get married, right? So, so they intermarry with other people from other cultures, and in intermarrying with other people from other cultures, the, the issue was that they take their religious views and plug it into their Judaism, which is called syncretism. It's the belief that you can have two things working simultaneous, and let's just make it happen. Let's make up a new truth, right? A new truth. It's like a buffet version of your faith. Like, I love a little Holy Spirit and good worship, but I love astral projection and other stuff too, right? So you just kind of like bring all this stuff together. This is not right, by the way. <laughs> and it was so detestable to the, the, the purity of Judaism that they were given the, the racial slur name of half-breed. So you would say, those people are half-breeds. And we don't want anything to do with them. They, in turn, the Samaritans weren't, you know, they, they did some awful things as well. Their place, and you'll see it um, if we get to it, um, you'll see it that, that a question is asked in this dialogue, like, hey, what mountain do we worship? There was a mountain called Mount Gerizim. You probably remember reading that in, in Deuteronomy. Mount Gerizim was where Moses read out the blessings. If you follow God, if you remain faithful to his covenant, I'm going to bless you like crazy everywhere you go. Blessing, blessing, blessing. It was the Mount of Blessing. Another mountain called Mount Ebal was a mountain that Moses read the curses. If you don't do the things God's called you to do, it's got, your life's going to be like this, this, and this. Does this make sense? Mount Gerizim was the Samaritans go, that's our mountain. We love the mountain where blessings are proclaimed. We'll build a temple there, and that's where we worship. And so they had made up the truth of what they wanted to believe about their faith and their approach, but they considered themselves Jewish in terms of their worship of Yahweh. I know this doesn't translate to anything else that's happening in the world right now. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. So, so to think of the Messiah, the Son of God, who's like, I'm going to go where no one else goes. I'm going to go into some dangerous territory. And not to mention, it's just quicker to get where I need to get. So why am, I, why am I going on the big loop around when I can just get directly there? And so he gets directly there, and he comes to a place called Jacob's Well. Jacob, for the Samaritans, that was their guy. He was their father. And so he goes to Jacob's Well. As we read in the text, it's, 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 um, it's, it's noon. That's the translation of the timestamp that's giving to us, given to us in Scripture. And let's just, let's just read it. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria, and he came to a town of Samaria called um, that town. And, and, and there near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus wearied, uh, underline that, he was wearied from his journey. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which in Jewish time um, was, was noon. He was wearied because he is 100% God and 100% man. And when you've walked for a while and it's really hot, you're tired and you want to sit down. And that's exactly what he did. The next thing that we read is, um, is about him engaging somebody there at this well. Now, what you have to understand is that to, to talk to a Samaritan would have been incredibly sinful to engage in any kind of activity, to set foot on their land, as I've already said, to be sinful. 
But, but on top of that, for a Jewish rabbi to engage in an excessive conversation with a woman was really, really bad. And this is one quote from the Mishnah, which is a, a part of the oral tradition of a rabbi saying, this is, and this is the nicest one I could find. Honestly, I'm like, I'm not going to put that up. Because some of the ways that rabbis referred to women were just like, like literally offensive. So much that I'm like, I don't want it up there. But this is the one that was the least of the offensive. It says, the one who excessively converses with a woman causes evil to himself, neglects the study of the Torah, and, and in, in the end, inherits purgatory. So you're delaying some paradise living if you talk too much to women. So if you're like a good Jewish man, and this is what you're being taught, are you going to be like, hey, what's your name? <laughs> You live around here often? Just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> my wife thought that was really funny. Um, no, you don't, you don't have those conversations, but yet here's the Son of God. Here's Jesus who had to go to Samaria, and, and, and he had a mission. It says, and a woman from Samaria, two strikes against her, her, her cultural background, and the fact that she was a woman, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This sounds like it could have been, you know, and, and that's the temptation when you're reading the Bible. You can read tone in. You could read Jesus like, give me a drink, you know. Or you could read Jesus say, can I please have a drink? You don't know how he said it. But the reality is, is it's, it's cordial. It's hospitality. It's like, what would be the other option? Him just sit there and not acknowledge her at all. Um, plus he's thirsty. And then it says in verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, and this, is, this gives you all the insight. How, wait a minute. She's like, wait, what's going on here? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Again, our parentheses help us. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Oh, I'm running out of time. I hate that. Okay, verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Remember I, I said to remember that word, living water? Uh, for us, living water, we're like, wow, Jesus is getting spiritual right away. It's very possible that he's not. It's very possible that Jesus is saying something and planting the seed for him to say in this conversation, there is a better way. She was at a well in the heat of the day, which we know, and you've heard this preached before, um, you don't go to the well at the heat of the day to, you know, to bring that bucket in, to wheel it up, and then walk in the heat back to your village. But the reason you would do that first thing in the morning, make it easier on yourself. The reason she did is you're going to find out in a little bit of time that she was a little bit shady. And she probably carried a lot of shame. And to go to the well would be like going to the old-fashioned water dispenser in the office you know you walk up and everybody's gossiping there that's just the area where people would go to have their daily gossip and I'm sure she had had her fill of it hear the hee hee hee's going on and then she walks up to give, get her water and everything just gets quiet right none of you have ever been in that situation before I'm sure that's kind of what seems to be what her life was like and so Jesus says hey if you knew who you were talking to you're talking to the guy who can give living water in, a, in this setting, there was a, a living water, meant water that bubbled up, a stream that ran through that had fresh water. It, what would be the difference between a stream that was like right there by your house that you can just go and drink versus putting a bucket in and being like, I'm getting a bucket? It's a better way. Jesus was saying, if you knew who you were talking to, I'm the guy who can bring indoor plumbing. I'm the guy who could make your life so much easier. And then she's intrigued. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water from, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Like, where is the abundance of bubbling up water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Um, he has given us the well that we drank from itself, and his sons and his livestock. And then you start to get the tone, and scholars would say this tone is very... Uh, like banter. It's, it's, it's strong and sarcastic. 
And Jesus said to her, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in them springs of living water, welling up to eternal life. Now he's changing the, the, the conversation a little bit. And the, but, the, but the woman is like, yeah, but how do I get that indoor plumbing? And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come and draw water. Yeah, man, she's on the practical. The point is, this, this woman, like many of us, has probably tried many, many things to satisfy her thirst. Like many, many things. Again, you're going to hear in just a moment, she seems to have a bit of a cycle going on in her life. She's stuck in a rut like every day. This is what she does. It's time to go get water. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman, woman answered says, I have no husband. The assumed tone here is shame, some anger, some sadness. Jesus says to her, you're right in saying that you have no husband for you've had five husbands. That had to hurt. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Her response to that is like, whoa, what's going on? This is not about indoor plumbing at all. This is about me. And I love this line. The woman said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And I could just picture, maybe it's because I've watched The Chosen, but I could just picture Jesus going, just a little smile. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say um, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Remember I described Mount Ebal. She's pointing off in the distance. That's where our fathers, our temple is. Your, your temple's in Jerusalem. What, what's going on here? What's really true? There's multiple truths that are happening. My truth is this. Your truth is that. What is truth? Again, something maybe quite relevant for us today. And then Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. Speaking to the deception, I believe, of syncretism and the two different beliefs or the many different pagan beliefs that came into her Judaism. But then he, then he goes on to, to speak of the purity of, of, of Judaism. He says, um, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It wasn't like, we're better than you. It was like, I'm the Messiah prophesied to come from this line. And then he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people. So much so, ma'am, that I had to come to you. Do you get what's happening? Do you get what's happening? God so loves the world, right? You have a Nicodemus who comes to Jesus with questions. Jesus is like, I'm going to her with answers. Man, it's more awesome than you're, you're leading on to believe that you think it is. No, for real, this is amazing. And I know you know it is too. I'm just trying to be a little silly in my nervousness. Verse 24 says, God is spirit. And those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. This is so awesome. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, that's me. I am he. Don't you love that Jesus doesn't use mystery? He doesn't use a parable. He doesn't, he just like, hey, I came to you to tell you something. There's a better way, even better than indoor plumbing. And I'm going to tell you some things about your life that are going to help you walk in real freedom. You no longer have to carry the shame of daily coming at this odd hour to get water. You don't have to do that anymore because the one you've been looking for who has the keys to freedom is here. And I, I'm him. And I came to you. I came to you for just you. That's Jesus. That's what John wants us to see. And then he says, just then his disciples came back. I love this because you ever been in an awkward moment? I think you have. You might be in one right now. I don't know. <laughs> this is like awkward moment. This is like, what's going on? The disciples come back and see Jesus and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. He's going, like, that's time in purgatory, Jesus. He's talking to a woman, but, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
I think it was their shock, like, don't say anything, but what's going on? But then here's the really cool response. It says, so the woman left her water jar. She left her water jar. And she went away into the town and said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything uh, that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to the town and, um, and were coming to him. Look, there's so much to pull out of this story, but what I want to do, and if we could have our worship team come, and you, thank you for being gracious and giving me five more minutes. If you have to leave, please don't feel bad about leaving, but the whole point of God's word is to hear it and to respond to it, right? And, and in response to, to God's word today, I just wonder, there's a, there's a couple different things that we talked about, but I'm thinking of this woman who, who leaves her jar. Why does she leave her jar? I think it's symbolic. I'm not going to need that anymore, right? I'm not going to need that anymore because I'm going to have in me what wells up as springs of living water. There are so many um, obstacles that we face in our world, you know, and there are so many causes for shame and causes for us to, like, withdraw and hide and Jesus comes out front in, at noon in person and just sets her free. And I put up these things just as we look at the whole picture of these, the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 of some application. And you might snap a picture of this or think about it in just a few minutes that we have to process with this worship song. But as you go back to the first part, when John the Baptist is dialoguing with his disciples and ask yourself the question, am I content to become joyfully second to Jesus, decreasing while he increases? Secondly, am I um, cautious of primary or secondary offenses and jealousies? Maybe the Holy Spirit wants to reveal something like, hey, you can put that offense down. You know, you don't have to carry that. Just be aware of those things that are, are coming at you, just like they came at John's disciples. Verse, or verse three, number three, do I need to move on from drama that keeps me from my mission? Again, this one's tricky and requires some discernment. This, maybe you're, you're done circling the same conversation and realizing, like, this isn't going anywhere. I, I need to not give that any more breath. I need to not let that thing live anymore. I just need to move away from the drama and towards what God is doing in my mission to be his best man. In verse four, verse four, number four, am I building my own religion based on life experiences and culture? That's what the Samaritans did. Am I building my own thing? Like I like some of this, but I don't like some of that. So I'm going to build my own thing. And then finally, the last and final one, is it time to leave your water jar and face the village with good news? A lot to be thought about there. I'm just going to let you look at those and, and I'm going to ask them to lead us in a song and I'm going to pray over you. But I feel really compelled in that, you know, to, to listen to God's word is one thing. But whether it's here and now, just to really ask the Lord to give you insight on these things and how you might respond to it. Let's just go to some time of worship.
ask you to stand with me if you're at a place where you can do it. Can I ask you if we could just dim our lights a little bit just to give us some, some quiet in our hearts. Where we began this time doing our best to be still, to know that you're God. Lord, and in, in this last kind of moment of stillness, we bring our pride before you, our, our tendencies towards jealousy. We bring offenses that are real easy to pick up. God, we bring this stuff before you. We're not hiding from it. We recognize that we need to give it over to you. God, we also recognize that you're gracious and you understand what it's like to be human to be weary at noon and need a drink of water. And you certainly understand what it's like to be tempted towards these very things that we so often can fall into. So we give it to you now, God. We, we pray that you would take that burden. Lord, we're reminded of just how beautiful your message and your son, God, how Jesus, you came into this, this world and you sought out the sinner. You didn't make them come to you. You went to them. You come to us. You're coming to us in this moment, God, that you're not trying to find us out so you, you know, tell on us and increase the shame that we already feel. But you come to liberate us from it, just as you did by going through and just breaking so many cultural boundaries by finding yourself with an audience for this Samaritan woman who I'm sure anyone who, who had approached her before never approached her with this kind of unconditional love and freedom. And Lord, in those areas, whether men or women in the room, where cycles of sin have caused us to be really good at hiding, cycles of sin or patterns of kind of making the same mistakes and just hoping that, hoping that one time it's going to get a different result. God, I thank you that you come to us in the middle of that and you show us a better way, a way that's even better than having easily accessible water, a way that, that, that really quenches the thirst that we were thirsty for in the first place. And I pray that you would do that now, God, across the, the, the sanctuary from the young to the older, God, that you would, you would break the walls of shame and guilt and you would bring freedom the freedom that you died for that we just sang about, the freedom that would cause men and women in this room to set down that jar, never to pick it up again, never to need to, because you could face the entire village with hope and a message of life. Whatever that looks like, God, I pray that you would begin the good work in people to set them free or you just set them free right now. But I bless your people, God, and I thank you for your word. May it continue to be life for us, Lord. Every word on the page, just continue to grow in us as good seed planted into the soil of our heart that we'd meditated on it throughout the week and that you would speak to us through it. So I bless your people now. I thank you for each one. Go with them, Lord. I pray that you would send them out with joy, the same kind of joy that John the Baptist had in the second role that he played. You would send them out with joy and lead them forth with peace. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you.